shocking twist in a road rage murder. I have never seen anything like this before. How egregious mistakes by I hit top brass allow the accused killer to go free and why many other cases might be in jeopardy too. A season on ice. What's happening with us is really just a microcosm of what's going on in the broader uh, community. New details about the COVID exposure that took down the Canucks and the major milestone BC's vaccine program just passed. And reaction to the passing of Prince Philip. I think the whole nation and indeed the whole Commonwealth and people all over the world uh, are mourning his, his, his departure. The Duke of Edinburgh and his long connection to BC. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We begin with a Global News exclusive. A man charged with second degree murder and attempted murder in a high-profile 2011 homicide has been acquitted. The victims, a couple that had been married only two weeks. The case fell apart when a B.C. Supreme Court judge ruled investigators with IHIT, the homicide investigation team, disregarded Canadian law in dealing with key pieces of evidence, despite legal advice to the contrary. The court heard that decision was deliberate policy on the part of IHIT, raising concerns about hundreds of other homicide cases. Ramina Dea and Jordan Armstrong are breaking this all down for us tonight. Ramina, we begin with your coverage. Egregious and disappointing. Chris, that's how the judge describes what happened in this case. After almost three years in prison awaiting trial, Samandeep Gill has now been released. Samandeep Singh Gill is a free man. The accused acquitted on charges of second-degree murder and attempted murder. I've been practicing uh, criminal law uh, in BC for over 20 years, and I can say without exaggeration, I have never seen anything like this before. 30-year-old Manbir Kajla and the love of his life had just married the morning of April 27, 2011. That same night, the new bride watched in horror as her husband was hit with a barrage of bullets and killed after a road rage incident in Surrey. The couple innocent. The incident not gang or drug related. The bride cannot be named because of a publication ban. The suspect fled the scene. Seven painful years go by for the victim's families. And then... And it may not always have appeared to be moving forward. I hope news of the charges brings some semblance of peace. Gill was charged in 2018, but the murder case crumbled after evidence tantamount to Crown's case was thrown out last month. Alleged audio of the shooting captured on a cell phone seized by police from Gill's home deemed inadmissible. Basically, the police threw out the rule book, a systemic policy that went to the top of IHIT, a basically flouting the law, of deliberately disregarding the law in what appears to be almost all of their cases across the board for a matter of years. According to court audio evidence from March 2nd, in 2007, I hit Sergeant Ross is advised by a senior justice of the peace. There was virtually no compliance by officers to seek extension orders to hold evidence once the original 90 days expired. 
Later that year, Sergeant Ross is advised by senior Crown Counsel. The legislation, Section 490 of the Criminal Code, is clear on seizure and detention. No latitude for covert police operations. Then in the summer and fall of 2007, Sergeant Ross is advised by a second senior Crown that he could not advise police to ignore the legislation. After that, Sergeant Ross is told by a senior lawyer for the Mounties that the RCMP could not advise police to ignore the legislation. January 2008, Sergeant Ross conducts an audit of 24 random homicide files under conduct of the Surrey office of IHIT. He finds 21 of the 24 files are in non-compliance with Section 490. Sergeant Ross then distributes a memo reminding all members of IHIT of the requirement to comply. IHIT Superintendent Wayne Rideout is also notified. The police cannot do this. The law is clear. The police have to comply with it. And they were told that in no uncertain terms. Court evidence reveals Staff Sergeant Gorgachuk's testimony indicates there were likely hundreds of files impacted by the blanket non-compliance policy while it was in effect from 2007 to 2014. Despite IHIT dumping the directive in 2014, the practice of holding evidence beyond 90 days without an additional court order continued. Evidence in Gill's case held for nearly seven years unlawfully, said the judge. The IHIT policy of non-compliance amounts to systematic, flagrant disregard for charter-protected rights, said Justice Masuhara. I find that IHIT was at best willfully blind towards the charter implications of the policy. The fact that the police in this case sought and received legal advice that explicitly deemed compliance mandatory makes these actions more egregious. The mandatory provisions of the criminal code enacted by Parliament are not a loophole. Those are the rules. They're the rules that the police have to comply with. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is part of our Constitution. That's not a loophole. That is a document that protects the rights of all Canadians. And the court's ruling in this case is an affirmation of how important it is that the police abide by those constitutional parameters and respect people's constitutional rights. The glaring question now is how many homicide cases are potentially in legal jeopardy because of IHIT's former policy of non-compliance with the law, according to the ruling? Here's Jordan Armstrong with that part of the story. Ramina, legal experts we've spoken to won't discuss the specifics of this case. The details are just too fresh, but they say in general, police who deliberately breach this section of the criminal code are playing with fire. Former B.C. Attorney General and Judge Wally Opal says Section 490 is somewhat extraordinary in that it allows officers to seize personal items as evidence before any charges are laid. But that doesn't mean that the police can go there and seize any and all items that are within their vision. And they often do that. He says it's up to the courts to ensure that the police follow the law. And that the rights of innocent people are protected. And the courts need to do that. They must follow Section 490. 
And it isn't new. It's been law for 36 years, says criminal attorney Ravi Hira. If an agency elects, deliberately elects, not to engage in that which is required by the law, in my opinion, that investigative agency is playing Russian roulette with evidence. So what could a deliberate breach mean for other similar criminal cases? On that, opinions vary. Hira says cases still under appeal could use the new information to strengthen their argument. However, if there is no appeal and the conviction is done, i.e. happened years ago, the change in the law is not available. I expect that there may be other defense counsel now that this ruling has uh, become public that may uh, want to ask some searching questions of the police through the Crown as to whether this policy applied to their clients' cases and to potentially seek a remedy. In a statement, a Crown spokesperson told Global News, I can confirm the BC Prosecution Service is reviewing this ruling carefully. A final decision regarding the next steps has not yet been made. We reached out to all levels of the RCMP, including national headquarters in Ottawa, to request an interview, but we did not get one in time for this story. By email, the acting boss of the homicide team said, I can confirm that IHID has since taken steps to ensure our investigative standards and actions align with and are compliant with Section 490. She goes on to say they're working with the prosecution service on how to move forward. I can't talk about police perception, but these are not guidelines. This is the law. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. To the COVID situation in B.C. now, we have topped more than 1,200 new COVID-19 cases for a second day in a row. The province confirming 1,262 new cases and two additional deaths. 332 people are now in hospital, a decrease of four. 102 of those patients are in the ICU. There are more than 9,500 active cases and over 15,000 people self-isolating. 40,018 doses of vaccine were administered on Thursday, and that pushes B.C. past 1 million total doses. The number of hospitalizations has been changing day to day this week, but we have new data that shows overall the number of people in hospital in this province is climbing. And for more, we'll bring in Keith Baldry from Victoria with a look at the numbers. Keith? Yeah, the hospitalization is always a very important uh, indicator of where we are with COVID-19 in BC. Uh, the daily numbers really mask what's really going on. We go from 330 to 335 down to 328, sort of bouncing around on that number. But it doesn't really explain the fact that more people than you think are actually going into hospital. Take a look at this in terms of from the Center for Disease Control, uh, the, the last two months of hospitalizations. You can see on the left there, we were about 150 at the start of February. We're now climbing close to 200 now at the end of March. Gone down a little bit in the middle, but starting to climb significantly the last three weeks. Uh, we talked to Health Minister Adrian Dix about this today, and he points, we also wanted to ask him, when are we going to get to uh, uh, herd immunity? We're starting to vaccinate more and more people. As we vaccinate more people, our hospitalizations should go down, but he says we're still a long way from getting that sweet spot. We've got a little more than 20% of the population vaccinated right now, almost a million individuals, but we're still a long ways away from where we have to be. 
So when we get to community immunity, it of course drives down transmission of COVID-19, but it's going to be a while before we get there. We're about 20-21% towards the end of the week in that range. So between one in five now and one in four people who are eligible to get the vaccine have it. We're a long way away though from community immunity. And that's why this April, this May, people have to really, I think, uh, take it upon themselves and all of us have to work together to limit transmission and of course, help everyone who tests positive for COVID-19. Now, when it comes to intensive care numbers, uh, Chris, uh, I think a little more uh, encouraging. The numbers haven't really spiked up that much on a weekly basis. About 37 people a week have been going in intensive care. The last three weeks, though, that's been bumped up to about 41 people in intensive care. That's why we crossed the 100 mark relatively recently. So hopefully those numbers start to go down with more and more people being vaccinated. I can tell you this weekend, we're probably going to hit the 1 million mark in terms of individuals. We're already over a million vaccines, but that includes about 87,000 second doses. We should hit the million mark of first doses sometime this weekend. That'll put us in the plus 21% of what the number that we need to get to. Got to get the pace of vaccinations up. That is for sure. Okay, thanks very much, Keith. A new poll has some shocking numbers showing the increase in anti-Asian racism many British Columbians say they are living with and the increase they've seen during the pandemic. Paul Johnson reports. Being More and more, Canadians of East Asian descent have been talking about their experiences since the pandemic hit. Growing up, there was a lot of racism. This in a country that touts its values of openness and inclusion for people of all backgrounds. And unfortunately, the results of this poll suggest otherwise. Steve Mossop is a Vancouver area pollster. Struck by the extent to which he was hearing that Asians were experiencing racism, he put his firm to work on a pro bono project. Sadly, his data confirms what they've been saying, and then some. There were a couple of surprises. One of them is the extent to which Asian British Columbians feel that anti-Asian racism is on the rise. Mossop's results may likely go down as nothing short of a national disgrace. A stunning 87% of those polled feel that racism has gotten worse during the pandemic. Breaking it down, 49% said they've heard some form of racial slur. 16% said they've experienced some kind of racism on social media. 10% at work. 6% reported property damage. And 5% said they've been physically assaulted. If you doubt that figure, just take a look at some of the violence caught on tape across North America over the last year. And consider how the previous occupant of the world's most powerful office may have given them oxygen. Kung flu. The tragic irony is that Canadians of East Asian descent were among the earliest adopters of mask wearing and social distancing and case rates in their communities have been lower than the average. Stupidity and intolerance have always been familiar bedfellows. And so the trend continues. Paul Johnson, Global News. The Vancouver Canucks have still not received clearance from the province to resume to action after nearly every player on the team tested positive for COVID-19. But as Richard Zussman tells us, the team still has some optimism that it can finish what has become a season to forget. No fans, no staff, no players. Things quiet at Rogers Arena. 
It's been more than a week since a COVID-19 outbreak stole the Vancouver Canucks season. Friday, the team speaking publicly for the first time. I mean, nobody who's needed to be hospitalized to date, so I'm pleased with that. Um, it's, it's, it's been a tough week. In total, 21 players and four staff have tested positive for a COVID-19 variant. The team would not confirm where the first case came from. We know that the individual had gone to a place within the guidelines and that place subsequently was discovered to have cases of COVID. It is unclear how many family members and close contacts have also gotten sick. There's no culprit here other than the COVID virus itself. Um, everybody's been working incredibly hard in the last year trying to avoid getting it. The question now is when will the team be back? as some players are still symptomatic. There have not been any additional positive tests since Wednesday, and the team is hoping to finish the season. Public Health will listen to our, our report and, and what we're going to do, and then we will have to get the green light from them. My conversations with the league are that we're going to continue uh, with our schedule here at some point, and we're going to play all 56 games. Provincial Health and Vancouver Coastal Health will be working with the Canucks to ensure that the proper protocols are in place if they are allowed to return to the ice. BC's Health Minister Adrian Dick says right now the focus should be on the health of the players and not getting back on the ice. The issue right now is just making sure that everybody involved, players, family, staff, uh, get uh, get well and get recovered. And then, uh, then after that, we can talk about uh, less important things like whether they play games. The province hoping this high-profile outbreak sends a message. The virus is spreading fast, impacting young and healthy people, and can only be stopped if everyone follows the rules. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, you never know when breaking news is going to come, so Richard Zussman moves from one story to the next for some coverage of breaking news in Saanich, where a wayward driver has crashed into a Walmart at the Uptown Mall. Firefighters rescued employees who became trapped when part of the building fell, and that's where Richard is right now. Richard, there are concerns we hear about the stability of the building. Yeah, crazy is the way Saanich Fire are describing this situation, Chris, and they are still on scene here at Uptown Mall. So this is exactly what happened. Around 4.30 this afternoon, there was a vehicle in the parking garage, and that vehicle ended up going through a concrete wall and ending up in the Walmart, pinning some people inside that were trapped in a freezer area as well as a deli. Saanich Fire dispatching all of the crews that they had to this area to help with the rescue. Luckily, only minor injuries in this case, just for the driver who was able to get himself out of the vehicle to emergency services. As for those in the Walmart, the fire crews were able to help get them out of that freezer area as well as get them out of the deli area. The area is still cordoned off. They have asked people to leave the premises of the mall. The Walmart, no doubt, will be closed uh, for at least the rest of today and into tomorrow as the investigation continues. And Chris, you alluded to it. The big question is, are there structural issues here? And it's something that's being evaluated by everyone on scene. James Crichton uh, from Saanich Fire, I just spoke to him a short while ago. He said, again, they're fortunate that everyone is safe, but they are still doing some preliminary work to understand what sort of damage and whether there are some potential issues still. Again, 
the Walmart is closed, Chris. All right, Richard, thanks very much for pulling double duty for us tonight. And more <laughs> details, obviously, as that story unfolds in the evening. One man is in hospital fighting for his life after being shot while driving on a busy road last night in Vancouver's Marpole neighborhood. Vancouver police say it happened around 9 o'clock and the victim was able to pull over on Marine Drive and U Street. A bystander called police and the driver was rushed to hospital where he remains in critical condition. Police say they have not been able to speak with him and do not know his name yet. It's believed to be a targeted shooting, but police are releasing few details about a possible motive. Somebody was shot. Um, it happened around 9 p.m., so it's still, uh, it's not overnight, and so I'm sure there were people out and about. So it is, it is a dangerous situation and a concerning situation anytime this happens. And now we have a person in critical condition, so of course it's concerning. It's still up in the air. We don't know. We don't know the, the condition, what will come of him. We don't, everything is still very up in the air. Anyone with information is urged to contact Vancouver Police Major Crimes Division. Well, he was the Queen's closest confidant and lifelong partner. And the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, had a long and interesting life, including many trips to B.C. in his role as a royal. Some of the most memorable trips next on the NewsHour. A bad time to go for a swim on the Italian coast. Why millions of jellyfish are lining the shore there. That's coming up a little later. And you are looking right now at a growing memorial outside of Windsor Castle, where 99-year-old Prince Philip passed away peacefully this morning. People are laying flowers, pictures, they're leaving candles, and they've been doing that since news of his death broke. Eight days of national mourning has now begun as more details are being released about his funeral. The Duke of Edinburgh will not have a state funeral or lie in state. His body will instead lie in rest in Windsor Castle, ahead of a funeral at St. George's Chapel. Prince Philip's life was longer and arguably more unpredictable than any other male member of the British royal family. He was actually born a prince of Greece before his family fled a military coup there. He fought the Nazis, married a princess who suddenly became queen before taking his seat next to the throne as the Duke of Edinburgh. Jeff Semple has more on a life full of service, sacrifice, and yes, the occasional controversy. For seven decades, he stood by Her Majesty's side, always a step behind. Prince Philip holds a unique place in British history. No one else served so long as the spouse of a reigning monarch. Not bad for a man who wasn't even British. Born in Greece in 1921 as a member of the Greek and Danish royal families. But after a military coup, Philip's family was banished, and he grew up shuffling between homes across Europe. In 1939, on the eve of war, Philip enlisted in the British Royal Navy. And one day during his training, he was assigned to watch over his distant cousin, Princess Elizabeth. They exchanged letters for several years, and when the war ended, Philip asked King George for permission to marry his oldest daughter. As onto the famous balcony came the bride and bridegroom. Their wedding in Westminster Abbey in 1947 was broadcast on BBC Radio to 200 million people around the world. The newlyweds never expected Princess Elizabeth was about to become queen. But after her father, King George VI, died suddenly in 1952, the queen was thrust onto the throne. And Philip was forced to give up his promising career as a naval commander to assume the full-time and ill-defined job of Prince Consort. 
framework of sticks. He threw himself into charitable work, most notably as the founder of the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, which were designed to encourage young people into community service. While Elizabeth appeared shy and reserved, Philip was friendly and even funny. I hope you had a good breakfast this morning because we may not be through until about tea time this evening. We're going to see the world's most experienced placard veil. <laughs> Even into his 90s, the royal workhorse carried out more public engagements than Harry, Will, and Kate combined, supporting nearly 800 different charities. In 2017, at the age of 96, Prince Philip carried out his final public engagement before retiring from royal duties. Philip is survived by his growing family, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, including three generations of future kings, all heirs to the British throne. His legacy includes more than 22,000 solo public engagements, over 70 years of service to his adopted country and to the woman who was both his queen and his wife. Jeff Semple, Global News, London. Prince Philip visited British Columbia a dozen times between 1951 and 2002 for a mix of official royal tours, official engagements, and even private holidays with the Queen. And as Kylie Stanton reports, the Prince is being remembered fondly here in B.C. for the impression he left and the connections he made. This is exactly where it was 19 years ago. It was an experience that can only be described as surreal. We saw this older couple strolling in the, in the garden. There she is, together. That's her and Philip. Yeah. An encounter so unexpected, but captured on video, to be able to relive it over and over again. The Queen and Prince Philip, you know. And my daughter and I were going, oh my God, it was fantastic, you know, to see them so close. The pair walking the grounds of Government House on one of their many visits to Victoria. A rare glimpse into their private life. The prince still by Her Majesty's side, like he had been for the past 73 years. But news of his passing Friday now ripples through the Commonwealth. It's hard to imagine Queen Elizabeth without Prince Philip there. Anybody who's... who's 99 years old and has been a part of our lives is tied up in it with a lot of memories for many of us. Canadians were first introduced to the Duke of Edinburgh in 1951 as he and the Queen toured the country coast to coast. The 80-mile sea trip to Vancouver Island. It was the first of many visits that would span decades, some accompanying the Queen. Here they are, the Royal Limousine at last. Others with his sons, where there was no shortage of attention. He is simply divine. <laughs> and of course, the occasional solo stint. He's been patron of all kinds of charities and institutions that have brought him here on his own. He's got a, had a military career and there's lots of military connections. But he also had a commitment to the next generation. They create my faith in human nature. And through the Duke of Edinburgh International Award, he solidified his legacy. The impact that the Duke of Edinburgh had on so many millions of youth around the world is just truly exceptional. The tributes now pouring in are a testament to that, honoring the man who always walked one step behind, yet carved his own path. He'll be missed, but others will carry on. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Up next, fraud delivered right to the door. So I, I read it, and then suddenly I said, I didn't use this door dust. Why she called Consumer Matters after seeing her bank statement. 
with DoorDash charges on it. Also tonight, small businesses struggling and their backlash against new workplace health orders in B.C. Traffic is steady north and south here at the Lionsgate Bridge after clearing an earlier crash at the south end. Just seeing some minor backups on the Cloverleaf out of the North Shore. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside Walmarts and the real Canadian superstores throughout BC. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com open every day. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Centre. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business says the new provincial government's plans to deal with COVID-19 outbreaks at businesses is not the right move. Dr. Bonnie Henry announced Thursday that WorkSafe BC now has the power to shut down any business for at least 10 days if three or more workers are deemed to have contracted COVID-19 at that workplace. The CFIB says there are better solutions than closures, and those include rapid testing for the virus. Now, a TD customer became the victim of fraud after someone made unauthorized DoorDash charges to her debit card. Most of the charges were reimbursed by the bank, but not all of them. And that's when Consumer Matters reporter Andrew was called in to help. And Thanks, Chris. It was a frustrating experience for this TD customer who fell victim to debit card fraud to the tune of over $2,000. When the Vancouver resident discovered the fraud on her statement, she reported it right away to TD, but the bank denied part of her claim because the fraud wasn't received in the required time frame. August 3rd, 8677. Era Portner and her husband Willie review a series of fraudulent DoorDash charges to Era's TD debit card. 41099. I was surprised because I never uh, ordered online. The Vancouver resident, who's been a faithful TD customer since 1992, doesn't online bank, preferring to visit her branch to do her banking. But because of pandemic restrictions, Era says the bank couldn't update her monthly statements in person. They said, oh, we are not allowed to update because for the COVID virus. It wasn't until this past January, Era says she finally received a record of her bank statement in the mail. That's when she made the shocking discovery she was the victim of fraud. And then suddenly I said, I didn't use this door does. On that bank statement, fraudulent debit card charges, the majority from DoorDash, made between August 3rd, 2020 and January 7th of this year, totaling just under $2,400. The couple reported the unauthorized charges immediately to TD Bank. And there was no red flag from the bank whatsoever. Willie says TD's fraud department was helpful at first, but says he was later told some unsettling news by a TD representative. He told us that they cannot reimburse anything beyond 90 days. ERA also receiving this formal letter from TD Bank stating, Our investigation is complete and regrettably your claim has been declined as we did not receive it within the required time period. While the majority of the fraud charges were reimbursed, ERA was still out over $500. If somebody steals something from, from you, is there, is there a time limit to report it to the police. 
Consumer Matters reached out to TD Bank on Eris' behalf. The next day, she received a call from TD Bank informing her she would be reimbursed the remaining amount of over $500. TD telling Consumer Matters, over an isolated period, a small percentage of TD Visa debit card holders experienced fraudulent activity incurring unauthorized charges from this merchant. We resolved this specific issue with the merchant and facilitated reimbursements for our customers. We tried to solve that problem for over two months with no avail, and you solved it in one day. It, it's incredible. We, we're so happy. As to who's behind this fraud, it's still unclear. In the meantime, Eric Portner has now set up her account for online banking so she can regularly check her statements. TD also says debit card customers who receive account statements have 35 days from the statement date to file a claim for an unauthorized transaction or 35 days from the posted transaction date if they do not receive account statements. It also says depending on the circumstances, claims may be accepted beyond these time frames on a case-by-case basis. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can always email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, and thank you very much. Up next, stress on the healthcare system. So we're starting to miss things like cancer, diabetes, heart problems. A reality check about hospital capacity and how COVID is keeping people from visiting the ER when they really should. And invasion of the jellyfish, the coastal region with millions of unwanted visitors. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC, brought to you in part by the BCTF, our kids and their teachers worth investing in. Traffic is steady both ways tonight at the Burrard Street Bridge. The Cabby Bridge is another good option and minor delays both ways due to lane closures at the Granville Street Bridge. Time to renew your home insurance? Switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage, and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Wisson in the Global Traffic Center. In Health Matters tonight, a new study suggests British Columbians are avoiding calling 911 due to COVID-19. Ambulance calls fell 15% in the first months of the pandemic, even for the most serious cases. And as Aaron MacArthur reports, doctors worry about the lingering consequences of putting off treatment. Not since last spring has the healthcare community been this worried about the capacity of critical care beds in BC. The number of COVID patients in the ICU continues to tick up, but it appears to be happening at the same time people are avoiding the hospital for other serious issues. Like many around the Lower Mainland, the St. Paul's Emergency Department is busy, but hardly overwhelmed. We're still only seeing 85 to 90 percent of our usual volumes in the emergency department. It's difficult to tell where we'll be in a month from now, but right now we're doing very well. We have room, we have capacity, we can care for you. Dr. Schuermeyer is the co-author of a recent study showing how hospital usage has been shaped by COVID-19. In the first three months of the pandemic, 911 calls were down 15%. Critical care calls for things like heart attacks were down 9%. It's hard to quantify why, but anecdotally, the reason's easy to understand. People don't want to be a burden on the healthcare system and are afraid of catching COVID. Hospitals are safe. Don't stay home if you have a health condition that you need attention for. Go to the emergency department if you need it. 
The problem, according to the study's authors, is so severe, people are dying because they haven't sought treatment. We, we don't want to be missing too many you know, cancers and heart attacks and nuance of diabetes. The COVID numbers, sobering. But long term, the downstream consequences of people avoiding medical care for treatable issues will be felt for years to come. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Still ahead, the Canucks address their COVID struggle. Know that the individual had gone to a place within the guidelines. In sports, what the team says about returning to the ice. Also tonight, satellite debris. Mm -hmm. Check out this unusual site at a port in northern Italy. Earlier this week, residents of Trieste found a giant smack of jellyfish. Yes, that's what a group of jellyfish are called in their harbor. Many taking to social media with videos like this one. Environment groups say strong winds and currents bring the jellyfish into the harbor occasionally. They stayed on the surface because it's warmer and that's where they find more plankton. Pretty cool. All right. Uh, windy weather was an issue here uh, on the south coast as well, and maybe mm -hmm. even some snow in the forecast as well. Christy's got the details. Yeah, just over higher elevation regions, Chris. Here's a quick look at Lynn Valley this morning, where we have the potential again tonight of some uh, wet snow, maybe down to about 300, 400 meters. It is cold out here right now, I'll tell you that. And we are well below seasonal by a good four to five degrees in some areas. This was a scene on Mount Seymour. 20 centimeters of snow today, and it's still coming down. It should be a fantastic snow day uh, tomorrow, especially since the sun is going to make an appearance. Here's a look at the interior region. Snowfall interior. Snowfall expected overnight and through the morning hours. Sig small amounts through the Okanagan Valley, but uh, the Kootenai Pass expecting significant snow. And the Coquihalla, we're talking about 20 centimeters of snow. Bear in mind, you need snow tires right through till the end of this month if you're traveling any of the mountain passes. Now, the sunshine you see here is in the afternoon most of the precipitation overnight and through the morning hours tomorrow but easing through the morning especially in through the east fraser valley so enjoy the sunshine tomorrow staying on the cool side tomorrow but we've got a significant improvement this week as we hit 20 degree weather for the first time this year first big warm-up this year and here's your central windows weather window from port alberni janine got this little guy on her finger if you can believe it and chris i wanted to give you a welcome back we're glad that you are healthy and uh, your family is healthy and that you're Aww. back with us now. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Christy. Yes, coming out of uh, COVID exposure, isolation. It's a lot of people dealing with that right now. Be safe out there, and I really appreciate that. We'll be back with Squire in the Sports next. Here's Squire Barnes with a look at the sports and Canucks factor big in the in the cast today. That is true, Chris, uh, and welcome back. Uh, today, the uh, Canucks finally talked about what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks, and that is the COVID outbreak on the team. But there was no naming and no shaming whoever got it first. One of the burning questions since this Canuck outbreak spread like wildfire was who was responsible? The Canucks do say it was a single individual who contracted the virus in public. But today, the Canucks team doctor emphasized that it was not a reckless disregard for strict COVID protocols. We know that the individual had gone to a place within the guidelines and that place subsequently was discovered to have cases of COVID and that's, that's how it got into organization. 
and we've made it very clear within our, our group that there's, there's no culprit here other than the COVID virus itself. With nearly their entire team now in recovery phase, the Canucks are hopeful a return to the ice is not far away. They don't have specific timelines yet, but it will be a gradual process. Like the first, you know, order of business is getting our players healthy, getting them back skating, working out, and, and you know, having good communication with them as to what they're dealing with, how they feel, um, and then ramping it up to where we have some team practices, um, and then from there, you know, actually playing the games. The Canucks will have to make up at least eight games, possibly nine, once they do return to the ice. Even if the NHL extends the season another week, the Canucks would have to squeeze in the remaining 19 games over just a four-week span. One alternative could have the Canucks games against Ottawa and Calgary deferred to later in the schedule and only play them if they affect the playoff races. One thing is for certain, Jim Benning says he doesn't expect to be making any deals at this Monday's trade deadline. I think it's more the human side of things. Um, you know, they've dealt with a lot here the last couple of weeks, um, you know, uh, getting the virus themselves and, you know, running through families and stuff. And, you know, I just don't think it's the right thing to do at this point in time. Okay, the announcement of Tanner Pearson getting a new three-year contract from the Canucks yesterday got about the same reaction that a classic rock band would get when it was on stage saying, now we have to play something from our new album. But I'm uh, quite sure Jim Benning is not going to be dissuaded. He loves Tanner Pearson, and it's not like he's a bad player. He's not a bad player. It's just the Canucks have done this before with second, third, and fourth-line veterans, and the justification is always the same. He's good for young players. Important to our group. Like, he's, you know, he's a glue guy in our room. Like, he's an experienced player that knows what it takes to win. Um, you know, I think, you know, as we go forward here, we're going to get younger. And he's going to be good for, you know, the young players to, uh, as a role model and as a player that does the things the right day on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, so he was an important guy for us to get signed. I think they said the same thing about Jay Beagle when they signed him. Okay, Masters second round. It was a four-shot lead after 18 holes yesterday for Justin Rose. Now it's just a one-shot lead after 36 holes, but he still is in front. Corey Connors of Canada, who was a top-10 finisher when they had the Masters last November, he goes into the weekend tied for 13th. That's a nice eagle putt right there. Uh, Mackenzie Hughes also made the cut. You know who didn't make the cut? Brooks Kepka didn't make the cut, neither did Rory McIlroy, or last year's winner, DJ. Dustin Johnson is Shocker. out as well. I know. All right, thanks very much, Squire. We're back with Satellite Debris next. We packed a lot of the, into this show, so go, Squire, quick. Okay, so this first commercial we're going to show you, there's no CGI. This actually took over 2,000 takes for Plank Furniture. <laughs> Thank you. 
unbelievable. of Job would have been required to be the director <laughs> on that. Okay, here's one from uh, Mountain Dew Kickstart. I'm disturbed. I'm digging it. I'm disturbed. Okay, this one that. has a bull, a scary monster, and then right after that, mischievous monkeys. Here we go. The money calm bull just saved 200 pounds, ensuring this sweet ride. Now, he's as calm as Catamel. Get car insurance calm. Money supermarket. You want me to go to Newark with those guys? No, they're they're all business. Pack this bag yourself, sir. Yes, I did. Oh, okay, that is not not mine. Ron, poison ivy shampoo just does not sound like a winner to me. Guys, somebody ordered forty-six banana daiquiris. Job causing you sleepless nights? Careerbuilder.com. Start building. There you go. Ending it with a classic. It was a classic. Well right. done, Squire. <laughs> Good to be back with you guys. Missing Sophie, but hope she's enjoying a day off after doing a lot of heavy lifting over the last couple of weeks. Hope you all stay safe out there and have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>